Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Anna Soins. Anna is a multi-sport adaptive athlete, a committed outdoors person in all seasons, and a wildlife biologist. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to discover new skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Fall season is now open. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find their partner link on our website. Anna, how are you today? Good. How are you, Chris? I'm great. I really appreciate for our listeners. This is our second shot at this because I messed up the audio file the first time. (laughs) Blame the internet. Blame something else. (laughs) (laughs) So jumping right into it, you are a multi-sport athlete. You have been your whole life. Tell me what brought you into the outdoors. Me, the outdoors is just, I've always been drawn to places that make me feel small, that make me appreciate just kind of the natural beauty of the world. You know, I've, I've never really been drawn to places like New York City. I I like finding simplicity in the world. And so I think that's what draws me outside. And you started out as a bit of a sailor, didn't you? Yeah. Growing up, I grew up in southeastern Wisconsin on Lake Michigan and through family, friends, got connected with the tall ship world (laughs) and so I spent several summers through middle school and high school and a little bit of college working on tall ships throughout the Great Lakes. (laughs) Amazing. People who haven't been to the Great Lakes don't realize how massive they are. Yeah, no, I, I mean when you're standing on the shore it's not like you can see the other shore. You could be just looking at the ocean <laughs> and in the middle of a lake as big as Lake Michigan, the swells that build, you know, as the wind comes down north, south or whatever, like they can get pretty big. So yeah, <laughs> it's not your typical lake. No, oh, they're like inland seas. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So several years ago, you had an accident. And so now you have severely limited use of your legs, but you have not stopped being outside. Yeah. I mean, I, that Getting outside was the non-negotiable part for me. So, I mean, as soon as my injury happened while I was still in the hospital, I was like, that was my first priority was trying to figure out ways of getting back outdoors. I wasn't sure what that looked like at the time, but I mean, that was more important to me in some ways than like really walking. Like walking was my means of exploring the outdoors. Just required some creativity. (laughs) Tell me about one of your favorite trail stories. I mean, there are so many trail stories. My boyfriend and I, with this last mountain that we climbed, Mount Baker, it was very, very hot at the start. And for the first, you know, half of the climb, like we were just post-holing through slush. Like it was unreasonably warm for that kind of ascent. And because I am so much slower than the average climber, hiker. I wasn't carrying a pack. I wasn't carrying my own clothes for the expedition. One of the crew, one of my friends was carrying all of my clothes and my really big winter puffy. We decided was maybe a little too bulky. And because it was so warm, I could get away with my smaller one. Yeah. And so 
I ended up climbing Mount Baker, which was a four-day expedition with like a lightweight springtime puffy. But once you get to the top and there are no trees at high camp and the wind's blowing, things get very cold very quickly. And so it's freezing. And my my boyfriend lovingly donated his big warm puffy for me to wear while he froze his butt off for, you know, 24 hours. But he will not let me live that down. And so every trip we go on, whether it's, to a desert in the middle of summer or, you know, anywhere. He's like, do you have your puffy? <laughs> so you have done some pretty phenomenal athletic pursuits. And I, and I know that you don't want to be, you know, sort of held up as a person who, you know, has done these athletic pursuits, but you have. So Oregon Adaptive Sports and Bend sort of became a new avenue for athletic pursuits for you and it culminated in you climbing Mount Hood. You were the first Sitski descent of Mount Hood along with your dad and 12 others. So tell me, tell me about that expedition. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel very lucky to have found the adaptive sports community so soon after my injury. I think it really helped shape what my recovery looked like, both physically and mentally, you know, being always encouraged and supported to foster like dreams like climbing Mount Hood, you know, instead of being told like, oh, you need to stick to pavement now, or that's not realistic. You know, I've always been fortunate to find myself surrounded by friends post-injury who are always excited for a challenge we may not be sure what <laughs> the adventure may look like and all the details and all of the trial and error involved, but they're always enthusiastic and supportive. So I'm really grateful for that. Mount Hood was an idea my dad and I had kind of brainstormed a little bit before before my injury. I was an avid climber, rock climber before my injury. And my parents live in Portland where you can see Mount Hood from the city. You know, it's super iconic. It's just, you know, it's always looking down on you, you know? And so we had talked about maybe trying to do that at some time. But with my wayward lifestyle, I was frequently gone and, you know, life happens and we never really put like you know dates to the plan and so when I broke my back you know I I wasn't quite sure if that was possible you know that dream definitely was put on the back burner for a while as I learned how to do everything you know from putting on socks to driving a car to taking a shower I think it was about a year after my fall that you know I had I'd spent that time that year post-injury of just focusing on physical therapy, focusing on figuring out how to get outdoors again with Oregon Adaptive Sports and other organizations throughout the West. And yeah, I had a blast, learned a lot of new things, learned a, a lot about myself and how to, you know, tackle old problems in new ways. And so I, I think about a year after, after I first started learning how to ski and stuff like that, I was like, oh, you know, maybe this could still happen. I wasn't sure what it looked like. I didn't know if a bunch of friends would have to basically dog sled me up to the top, but getting to the summit of Mount Hood with my dad was something that was really important to me. So started putting some ideas on paper and pinging friends to figure out how to make that happen. Amazing. On that trip, you talked about skiing as the great equalizer. What did you mean by that? I think sit skiing compared to a lot of adaptive sports, 
really does put adaptive athletes on a level playing field. Maybe not backcountry skiing, but typical skiing with the chair lift up. You know, that is the hard part of going up against gravity. But once you're once you're sliding on snow, you know, I ski blocks, double blocks, just like anybody else. And yeah, it it's just it's incredibly freeing. You know, I bike a lot with my I've got a road hand cycle and a mountain bike hand cycle as well. And I, I love riding, but it's a different experience, you know, pedaling with your biceps rather than your quads. And so biking with two wheeled friends is, you know, it's, it feels a lot different. Whereas skiing with you know, my able-bodied friends, it's, I, I can go wherever they go. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk more about gear in a bit. I want to talk about sort of entry into the sports. Barriers to skiing, to mountain biking are already pretty exceptional. I imagine they're significantly higher when you're looking at ways to adapt to the sports for different abilities. Yeah, yeah. Accessibility for a disabled athlete means a lot of different things, you know. Um, mentally, for sure. I, I think the societal norms and expectations have a really big impact on what maybe the average person with a disability considers a realistic goal. You know, I, if you're told you're amazing every time you get a wheelchair out of a car, you may not think <laughs> that the bar should be much higher for you. You know, it, it kind of sets these parameters around your worldview. But yeah, cost, and then obviously the very physical barriers <laughs> of, you know, making the inaccessible accessible. My sit ski without the actual, like, wooden plank ski and bindings was, I think, eight grand. My adaptive mountain bike, which is a three-wheeled hand-cranked mountain bike, that's roughly 10 grand. My road bike is roughly seven and a half grand. None of this would have been accessible to me financially without the support of various grant organizations like Kelly Brush Foundation, Go Hawkeye Foundation, Challenge Athletes Foundation. There are various foundations and organizations out there that help support adaptive athletes because the equipment is so expensive. It's super customized, super made, you know, for in small quantities. So I, I understand the cost behind it, but it is just that one more barrier for folks to be able to get outdoors, which makes local programs like Oregon Adaptive Sports or whatever program is in your area so important because a it gets people on this equipment to at least try out and see if it works for them or kind of hone in on oh that bike doesn't work so well for me but this one does and it, yeah it just gives people a more informed path for finding what equipment works well for them but i guess the message here is that there, there is a network of organizations that that people can access yeah, totally. Like I said, I feel so fortunate to have found the adaptive sports community so early in my recovery. And at first that was very locally oriented, but as I've traveled throughout the West and, you know, met other people, it's just, it expands and expands and you always know somebody who knows somebody, you know, and it's, it's just, it's a great community that kind of spans the whole world, really. <laughs> so speaking of the West, you are not just a person who recreates in the outdoors. You are also a person who works in the outdoors. You're a wildlife biologist. 
How does that inform your approach to sport and vice versa? I became a wildlife biologist because of my appreciation for natural ecosystems, for, you know, wanting to conserve and protect native wildlife. I had originally gone to school to become a veterinarian and along the way realized I didn't want to talk about fleas for the rest of my life. <laughs> Again, <laughs> natural processes, native ecosystems was most important to me and gave me personal fulfillment. And so I, you know, I, I think it was just you know, natural for me. I don't know. Like the, what I do for work and play are very related, you know, like they're just extensions of my values and my priorities, I guess. Yeah, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Speaking of how, like when we're recreating an outdoor space, how you recreate has changed since your accident, since your fall. What do trail builders and land managers need to be mindful of in terms of trail building for all bodies and for all ways that we're accessing the space? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I I find myself frustrated when I visit national parks or state parks where, you know, they've got, quote unquote, the majority of their trails and their normal trails for everyday hikers. And then they've got, you know, one or two accessible trails and they're like a mile long and they're paved and they're flat. I'm like, okay, yeah, unless I preach the little bit of thought that there is more variation possible for that interpretation. You know, I I think a lot of trail builders for mountain bike trails, for example, just don't probably know that if they just made trails a few inches wider, that it opens up the trail system to a lot more users. And it really isn't a bigger, heavier lift. It doesn't detract from, you know, the natural character of the trail. But, you know, we can't expect trail builders to know what they don't know, right? And so I think that's where an education component from adaptive athletes is really important. So if you, you do want to see change in your trail systems, it's really important to be involved in those stakeholder meetings, to reach out to your trail builders, to your local forest, et cetera. Yeah, it, it won't happen unless they know what needs to happen. Totally. I was I was watching the Treadsetters edit with you and I was, you know, seeing how the trail was fine, but the bridges were too narrow for the hand cycle. Yeah, that's very common or, or they're just wide enough that you have to go, you know, very, very slowly <laughs> to, to, to cross it without falling. When I was preparing for the first time we did this, I was actually curious. And so I went on Trail Forks, which I know a lot of people in the outdoor community use for a variety of different activities. And notice there's a setting on Trail Forks for adaptive mountain biking from like cannot use to can use confidently solo. And I liked the phrase confidently solo, but there's limited free access to, to Trail Forks. You can only really have free access to one area, so most people choose their home area. Do you know of any other sort of initiatives or any other resources for people to sort of assess trails before they get there? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't aware that Trail Forks had that. Like, that's awesome. Had, you know, various friends throughout the community kind of kickstart things. It, it seems like it's been a challenge to have one system kind of stick and be universal across all users. I don't know right now if there's 
kind of a single source for that information right now. It just kind of seems to be word of mouth. If you're going to an area, you reach out to the local program or a local athlete, and they usually are the best knowledgeable source of, you know, what trails go and what trails don't. I hope to see more cohesive gathering of that information. And I know it's been in the works by multiple people, but again, it's hard to get everybody on the same page sometimes, but yeah. Uh, that's something I see for sure in the near future. Awesome. I, I mean, even within the community, we've talked about like what that means, what accessible trails mean, you know, what might be a reasonable trail for me to do solo as a rider with a little bit more experience. And in my case, fortunately, with more mobility, like if I get into a really tight bind, I know that I can get out of my bike and turn it around or what have you. I might have a bit more core function to navigate through tricky rock gardens or what have you, but that might not be a trail that would confidently be ridden solo by somebody with a higher level injury or what have you. And so, you know, different trail features like root drops and rocks and banks and all of those things, it does vary depending on the rider. So we've been trying to figure out rating systems that kind of take all of that into into account and allow people to you know make informed decisions on their own <laughs> that, that makes sense that you know before you start rating trails first you have to design a rating system that <laughs> is understandable by everybody <laughs> right what about urban cycling like what do urban planners need to be mindful of to ensure that bicycle networks they're building in urban areas are accessible and safe to adaptive riders yeah i i'm probably not like the most formed source on this information i i do have a road cycle that i ride occasionally but i i do tend to stick to paths that are not alongside the road because as a as a road hand cyclist I'm basically lying flat on my back and I'm so low to the ground I feel very vulnerable to cars not seeing me actually my boyfriend and I almost got hit by a car coming through a roundabout just a few weeks ago you know it's just it's not a driver's normal search image and so I really appreciate having you know thoroughfares through the city that are more robust than just a bike lane because <laughs> yeah, so you're looking for like fully protected infrastructure i would love that i and where i live here in central oregon it's definitely growing you see more and more of that but we've got a ways to go i know in other cities like portland they you know biking's just so much more commonplace there as a mode of travel that they've invested a lot into it but yeah visibility is a concern for me <laughs> yeah. yeah and hills because again my biceps aren't as strong as your quads i've so you've got a road cycle you've got a mountain bike i've seen a lot of different types of hand cycles so assuming some are built for different activities but are some also built for different abilities talk through hand cycles a bit for us oh absolutely there i feel like there are more and more manufacturers and models of hand cycles every year <laughs> so it's hard to keep up road cycle vary a lot depending on your level of injury how much mobility you have in everything from your hands all the way down to lower core you might be in more of like a seated position which makes for an easier transfer from wheelchair to road cycle or a really aggressive competitive 
rider who might enter a lot of races or competitions, you usually go for those really sleek aerodynamic ones that you're basically laying flat on your back and your hands are cranking in front of you and everything in between. Mountain bikes, my hand cycle, I'm in a prone position, so I'm basically like hands and knees and that position tends to favor lower level injuries for people who have a bit of core function because there's like a chest pad that I use for steering as well but it's I didn't have the abs to keep me off so that while I was riding like I would I I would just be resting (laughs) on my chest and it would be hard to breathe but they they also there's a lot of different styles of off-road hand cycles or these mountain bikes where you might be in just like a a more typical seated position again with your hands cranked in front of you there's a new manufacturer who has options where there's no cranking at all and so that has of course sparked a lot of controversy i mean e-bikes are a controversial topic amongst the biking community as it is let alone throw in like a three-wheeled or four-wheeled no cranked <laughs> e-cycle but that does open a lot of doors for people who may not have, you know, might be a high level quadriplegic and isn't really able to bike or crank or get onto the trails, get into the forest without this equipment. So yeah, it's still an area that I think the community is exploring together and trying to figure out what what is fair and equitable for everybody. We are having that debate in my home city. What is a bike and what is a motorcycle? Now that there are e-bikes that have become so powerful and I just wanna be really clear, this is a pro e-bike platform <laughs> right here. I've seen, you know, even in my own family, elder members of my own family now transition to e-bikes and they're back to cycling the way they were, right? They're going all the places they used to go. Right. And right now my, our, cause I speak for us, our only position on e-bikes is they need to get less expensive. <laughs> right. And I've seen the prices drop for, you know, two wheeled e-bikes drop substantially in the last few years, just as the battery technology and et cetera gets, you know, more advanced and cheaper to make. So I I do see that continuing to come down. I did like your point of how you have family members who are using this technology. And I I think we talked about it (laughs) in the original recording, but like this idea that like the adaptive sports community isn't a separate sphere from, you know, the quote unquote normal athletic community. And like, it it shouldn't be your one or the other, like it is this gradient. And if you're a 70 year old rider who, you know, would benefit from quote-unquote adaptive equipment then go for it you know I I have an aunt who has had I don't know half a dozen knee surgeries from lifelong skiing and isn't as confident isn't as strong of a tear as she once was and she was rehabbing from her most recent knee injury and approached an adaptive program at whatever mountain she was at that trip and asked if she could you know, fit ski for the few days that she was there with an instructor and they turned her away. And I was like, I don't understand that. Like it, it shouldn't be, or like gatekeeping for permanently disabled people only, which is like a ridiculous, like, I don't know what the qualifications are. And <laughs> if you can't pursue your athletic pursuits or your, you know, your outdoor explorations the way you want to, it, it's a weird, weird perspective. 
<laughs> you actually talked about that in the approach movie. You talked about the harm that comes from segregating the communities. Right. Uh, and I think, and I might be wrong. It's been a little while since I've, since I saw the trailer, but I think you use the term temporarily abled. The sediment was basically at some point, we're all going to need some type of support. Right. Or like, you know, and treating the adaptive world like charity is not helping anyone because I mean who knows what's gonna happen when you walk out your door you might be part of this community tomorrow you know like we're, we aren't aliens we're doing the same things it just looks different <laughs> you've also talked a bit about the problems of homogenizing individuals from within the disabled community because they're not homogenous they're people of different ethnicities or cultures or political perspectives Tell me about that as a problem, but also tell me your advice to people. How do we not do that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. And yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's an easy mistake to make because once you're a disabled athlete, like that becomes kind of your first label, your first cheer label. And so it is easy to kind of lump people all together without realizing that they have different experiences you know in the outdoors or recreating before their injury i i see that as kind of one of my bigger advantages as being a quote-unquote role model for lack of better term in the adaptive sports community just because i had a lot of experience in the backcountry doing various adventures <laughs> prior to that so i had that you know, kind of base level confidence, but for somebody who maybe grew up in the city and was injured, but is still looking to explore the outdoors now, they may not have that confidence to go camping for the first time because, you know, all of a sudden catheterization looks a lot different. You know, their morning routine looks a lot different. Like there are all these factors on top of just the normal camping experience that makes just normal daily activities as a person with a disability a lot more daunting and yeah so if you're ignoring those kind of fundamental <laughs> fears or apprehensions you may be overlooking a pretty big mental barrier to getting somebody outdoors i know i have a lot of friends who are you know higher level injuries quadriplegic or what have you where you know it's a lot harder to thermoregulate and they they might bike a lot in the summer but they don't really want to ski in the winter because it's really hard to stay warm and for a lot of folks that's not something you really think about unless you have to right what what can you know the outdoor industry what can brands what can resort managers what can they do to do better what can they do to make spaces fully adaptable, not to just adaptive athletes, but to disabled people? Right. I mean, and just talking to people, I think helps. I don't know. I ask the question, maybe you know. Talk yeah, to yeah. It it does seem like a lot of the times the person with the disability is taken out of the conversation, <laughs> and that's people, you know, trying to imagine what they need without their input if you're missing like the table bring the voice to the table right another point i wanted to bring up as well is you know not every person with a disability is looking to be the next trevor kennison or the next like badass like <laughs> world-renowned adaptive athlete i think Within our own community, there's sometimes an inadvertent pressure placed upon people with disabilities to become independent or to become, you know, whatever the next 
that's greatest. And people don't appreciate that pressure. They just want to go for a fun ride. <laughs> they just want to hang out with their kids in the outdoors. And maybe they're not trying to ever become an independent skier, but that doesn't mean that their their goals and their experiences are any less valued. Of course not. There's a lot of, you know, two-footed skiers who have no interest in becoming the next, you know, Elise Sogstead. <laughs> Why would we put that pressure on anybody else? We had a really important, I thought, conversation the first time we tried this, <laughs> where we talked about the, the tendency to infantilize disabled community members. Talk to me about that. Uh, I don't know if it's just like a physical appearance, like if you're seated in a chair, you just look smaller and therefore are a child. I don't know if people assume that people with physical disabilities also have intellectual disabilities. I'm not sure. Even if you have an intellectual disability, you don't deserve to be treated as a child if you are not a child. And yeah, it just it frustrates me. <laughs> I think I... I try to maintain my composure. I have a lot of friends who don't deal with it quite as gracefully, quite as tactfully. I know people mean well, ultimately, which I think helps me mentally just the things they have a tendency to see. You know, and it, it probably doesn't register for the average person. It's like, oh, it's great to see you out here. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. How's it going, kiddo? Slow down, you're going too fast. You're going to get a speeding ticket on that wheelchair. You know, when you hear these things over and over and over again, it makes you feel like a child. I think I gave the, <laughs> told the story of my boyfriend who is able-bodied, white male, six foot two, I don't know. And, you know, he's an adaptive ski instructor as well. He's obviously spent a lot of time around adaptive equipment, very comfortable with my sit ski, my wheelchair. You know, he occasionally he takes my ski and takes a few laps just to work on his own, you know, fundamentals of sit skiing. So he can use that to teach others. And when he gets in a sit ski, he almost inevitably gets comments from lifties or whoever, you know, like, oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> Good job, or you know, things you would never hear as a six foot tall man <laughs> walking around on a ski hill. We were just in Italy flying back from a ski trip, and I was, you know, hanging out in the airport. I had I transferred into just, you know, one of their one of the chairs sitting in the airport, and we got in my chair just to tool around to kill time. <laughs> and he he got I think two or three comments just in the time he was twirling around the airport of, oh, good job, buddy. <laughs> you know, just like weird little comments that, again, never received. They saw him standing. <laughs> That's wild. It's wild. And and you're right. I, I appreciate your approach of assuming people have the best of intentions, but the best of intentions means learning to do better. Right. No, very... Well said. Going back to adapted, was that your first time in a, was that your first heli trip? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell me about adapted. What an incredible crew to work with. Tell me. Actually, no. Rewind. Adapted. Or sorry, yeah. the approach. Yeah. Adapted was Mount Baker. Adapted uh, was Mount Baker. Approach was heli skiing. <laughs> was that your first heli trip? Yes, it was. I I never dreamed I'd be skiing out of a helicopter. It was awesome. <laughs> 
I mean, even without the skiing, just the like views and the experiences, super awesome. <laughs> yeah, but tell me about that expedition. Tell me about Alaska. So that was made possible with combination of the approach filming and Kelly Brush Foundation kicked in some money to make that all possible. And yeah, hung out in Girdwood, Alaska for a week. We timed it either very poorly or perfectly, I'm not sure, <laughs> with like the only storm to have come through in like six weeks. <laughs> so we got grounded. Unfortunately, fortunately, these are very first world problems um, for the <laughs> first few days because, you know, there's too much snow. It was storming. Um, but then we just got to ski the most ridiculous powdered Alieska for, you know, three, four days <laughs> in April, which we were not expecting any snow. And then got like three feet of snow and I like I should have had a snorkel because I couldn't ski or see <laughs> as I was skiing. We en actually ended up postponing our flights once I think we were contemplating doing it again to try to catch the weather window at the tail end of the storm and finally got up into the air. So we got very lucky. Got into the air you know, the day after all the snow had come in and it was just a, an awesome, beautiful experience. Amazing. I have never heli skied Alaska. It's been a dream forever. I'm super, super jealous. <laughs> I am very fortunate, very fortunate. I think what, like, so part of the reason it was funded was I was an ambassador at the time for Kelly Brush Foundation, which is an organization that supports people with spinal cord injuries, helps connect them to this big community throughout the U.S. of resources and other other people with disabilities. And they also have these grant application or grant cycles twice a year to help fund adaptive equipment. But anyway, so I was ambassador for KDS. I recently was connected via a friend to a man who was recently injured and is now a T10 paraplegic. And he was in that point in the first few months after recovery at that stage of, you know, reconsidering the things that might be available to him now. You know, the initial shock of his injury wore off and he's like, how can I get back out onto the trails, onto the mountain? What does that look like? And so we chatted for a while. I was talking about the various equipment available, all these funding resources, et cetera. And I just kind of mentioned that I had just gone heli skiing and he's like, what? Like, I can still do that. Like I wanted to do that with my son for years. I didn't, I thought that was no longer possible. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad I talked to you. And I, I just like made my heart feel good. And it's like, this is what, like, this is exactly why KBF gave me these funds to do stuff like this. So I'm, I'm glad it's resonating with people, the people who need to hear it. <laughs> Absolutely. I got mixed around because all of your latest films all start with the letter A, but you actually <laughs> did Adapted first. And that's where you were the first Sitski to skint on Mount Baker, right? Right. To my knowledge, yes. When you were interviewed after that expedition, you said you would have preferred not to be the first. Why? Because I don't consider myself an amazing athlete. <laughs> and so it just, to me, that just, it just frustrates me knowing that there are more people out there with disabilities who should be doing things like this, who should have been encouraged to be pursuing things like climbing Mount Baker far before me, and they were just never given that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. That film's yet to be released. Do we have any sort of, you know, updates on timelines for release for that? I 
think it's going through final editing, sound, you know, all that good stuff. I, I last time I had talked to the producer, he was still hoping for sometime in 2022. But I know, you know, funding to get it all completed has been an ongoing challenge for him. And I'm sure COVID, as with everybody, did the final production no favors. So <laughs> I will say 2022, but TBD. Well, we'll be watching for it, absolutely. And listeners, links on where we can support the program to get this film out into the world because it looks like it's going to be phenomenal will be on the show notes. So, Anna, you've done quite a lot of media, but what is a question you've always wanted to answer but you've never been asked? Or what is something that you've always wanted to tell people but you haven't had an opportunity? That's a good question. I wish I remember what I told you last <laughs> My head keeps going back right now to a short little film that Oregon Adapted Sports put out a few years ago about talking about uh, the idea of the dignity of risk and how that concept is often taken away after you have a disability. You know, even with that, within the adaptive sports world, going into these lessons, learning how to ski. And so often you're handled with these quote unquote kid gloves <laughs> and you're just everyone around you is protecting you from harm. They don't want to let anything happen to you. Right. And then it's just an end stop there, but you know, without having the risk to potentially fall again or potentially get hurt, you don't have that full opportunity to really explore and push your own boundaries. And I think, yeah, I, I think that dignity of risk, that, that being able to choose your level of risk in the things you do still be part of your life, whether you have a, a spinal cord injury or not. That's brilliant. I love that. And that might be the title of the episode. You've been incredibly busy this summer. Tell me, what have you been up to? What's next? What are some big objectives that you're thinking of in the future? What's going on? I don't know. Summer seems to be whizzing by. I think it, it came late. We got a lot of snow and cold weather kind of through May. And then all of a sudden it's 100 degrees up. So yeah, I've been doing just some local traveling, a lot of river rafting trips. We've got a little sailboat trying to get on that. We're Headed down to June Lake, California for a family trip soon. Headed to the coast, Glacier National Park in the fall, which I'm very excited for. Have not been there before. That's a perfect, perfect example of I pinged several local riders I know in Montana to say, hey, what, what trails will my hand cycle fit on in Glacier? Because I know not every trail worked. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll see if we'll see what other big, large-scale concoctions I drum up. But right now, it's kind of connecting to friends and family. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect things to be doing. Where can our listeners find you? I have an Instagram handle that I'm kind of cyclically dedicated to. <laughs> I've watched the last time I post to it recently, but that is Peaks and Puddles. Listeners, you can find links to Anna's Instagram, as well as links to all of the different foundations that we've talked about and potentially a few others on the show notes for this episode. Anna, thank you so much for coming back and trying this again. I think we've got it. It's lovely talking to you again, Chris. <laughs> oh, it's lovely talking to you too. 
That is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Anna and all of the resources we talked about are on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.